Well, there are uh, about 8 billion people who live on this planet. I think it's like 7.8 billion people, around 8 billion people who live on this planet. And it's estimated of that 8 billion people, about 25%, one in four, 2 billion people have not heard the gospel, have not heard the truth about Jesus Christ, have not heard the truth about how their sin separates them from God. And God has sent his only begotten son, Jesus, out of a love for them. So one in four people in this world have never heard the gospel. It's estimated also that every day, 70,000 people die having never heard the gospel. 70,000 people. That's more people than the student population at the worst college in America, Texas A&M. And here's my concern. Some of you are more concerned about the legacy A&M than about the 70,000 people who are dying without Jesus Christ. That's a joke, y'all. I could have said UT, I could have said Baylor, I could have said any school. My point simply is 70,000 people, the same Jesus that you and I have trusted, that we know, that we walk with, will die without him. There's roughly uh, almost 8 million people here in Greater Houston. 8 million people, it's like 7.6 million people in Greater Houston. And I was talking to uh, the Houston Church Planners Network, a group that we're involved with, that I've been involved with, and they say this, that we can plant, we can start a mega church every single week in Houston, 52 weeks out of the year, 2,000 or more people, and not like 2,000 transfer membership, like genuine 2,000 people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. We can start a mega church every week, 52 weeks, and still not even move the needle when it comes to reaching all of greater Houston. And it's in this context of almost 8 billion people around the world, almost 8 million people here in greater Houston that Jesus Christ gives us our marching orders, our purpose for our lives. He tells us to go make disciples of all nations. The word nations is ethnos, ethnicities. He says, go and make disciples of all ethnicities, all nations. So it's in this context of 8 billion people. 8 million people here in Greater Houston that Jesus says this. And if you think about it, that is a daunting and fearsome task. Amen? Amen. And so what we're going to look at today is whenever we have a daunting, intimidating, large, God-sized task that God has put upon us, how we're supposed to go about doing that. So if you have a Bible, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, and we will see this daunting task before the Israelites before Nehemiah and the other Jewish leaders. What is this daunting task? So the attitude that we have to have whenever we're faced with a daunting, intimidating, large task, like reaching 8 billion people, like discipling 8 billion people, like discipling here in greater Houston, 8 million people. Nehemiah chapter 3. And we'll find our role in God's mission to redeem and restore and I know this has been harped on lately about strengths and your strengths finder, but should I be a specialist or a generalist? And do you really want God to use you for something far greater than you, something that will outlive you? And do you want to see God's gracious hand in your life? Nehemiah chapter three, I'm just going to read verse one. Then Elisha, the high priest and the other priests started to uh, rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated and tower of... Hanano. Um, stop right there. 
So the task at hand, as we've looked at the last two weeks, is this. Nehemiah sees the walls around Jerusalem are broken down, making them vulnerable to attack. Uh, uh, the worship can't go on as it should be. They cannot do uh, retail stuff, sales and merchandising. They can't do all those things in everyday life. And so he has a broken heart. God breaks his heart for what breaks his. And it's the fact that the walls are down and worship is not there. They're spiritually far from God. And so he feels this call from God to rebuild the walls. And so if you remember, he walked for about three months, 900 miles. He arrives at Jerusalem. He scopes out the scene. And now he's beginning to rebuild the wall. Now here's the task at hand. Don't think a weekend fencing project with some of your buddies. He has to rebuild a wall that's two and a half miles in circumference, in diameter, two and a half miles, 40 feet high, eight feet wide, all right? So this is not just a little plywood wall or a little fence. This is eight feet wide. It's enough for a chariot or a car to go on. It's uh, high enough where you can't just easily climb over it. And the wall is made out of limestone. There's still traces and remnants of the wall today. So these are large limestone boulders or rocks that are, again, two and a half miles around, 40 feet high, eight feet wide. So this is the daunting task before them. So here's point number one. Accomplishing God's mission requires all hands on deck. And that's just how this sermon today, all hands on deck. Accomplishing the task before us, the great commission here in this context, rebuilding the wall requires all hands on deck. This is not just something for the specialists, the pastors and the leaders. This is something for everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. And in this context, everyone who names the name of the God of Israel. And this is why I read verse one. It says, Eliashib, the high priest and the other priests started rebuilding at the sheep gate. I believe it's no accident that this chapter starts with the sheep gate and in verse 32, it ends with the sheep gate. And you're saying, what's the significance? What Nehemiah is about to do is give us a tour of the wall, starting at the northern top, the sheep gate and go counterclockwise. We're going to go around counterclockwise. Can you put that slide up? I think there's a map of the wall I've got. All right, it'll come up in a sec. So he's starting from the top and he's going counterclockwise. This is why the sheep gate is important. The sheep gate is the gate in which, guess what animal walked through? Good, yeah, trick question. That's not a trick question. It's sheep. Do you remember what sheep are essential for in temple worship? For sacrifice, for sacrifice. So Elisha, who's the high priest, in modern day terms, he would probably be like the governor, the mayor. He's, he's someone who's a leader. He's significant. This is what Elisha does. He recognizes the reason why the walls are down isn't simply a construction problem, isn't simply some architectural problem. He recognizes that the reason why the walls are down is it's a spiritual problem. So before they can begin uh, restoring the walls, they first have to restore their relationship with God. That's why it's essential because he says, uh, let me find the text here. In Hebrews 9.22, quoting Leviticus 17.11, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. He recognizes that in order for us to restore the walls, first we have to restore our relationship with God. And that means in the Old Testament, before Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we have to begin to sacrifice lambs. And so he says the first thing we have to do is Rebuild the sheep gate. There it is. So the sheep gate is at the far north. We just read the Tower of Hananel and the Tower of 100. He's going to go counterclockwise in this journey. Now, here's the thing. Um, 
whether the problem is political and corporate greed and corruption, whether the issue is human trafficking, whether the issue is fatherlessness, whether the issue is racism, shadism, or colorism, whatever the issue is, the root issue is a broken relationship with God. And so I agree with Hananel, I mean with Elishib, the first thing that we have to do before we begin rebuilding, restoring our world is it all starts in our context with Jesus Christ, amen? People have to come to know Jesus Christ as their personal king and savior and president. And from there, we can begin rebuilding on the outside. So he says first, Eliashib um, is the one who came. Now I wanna mention this. There's uh, six things I'm gonna cover here very quickly. Uh, so that's the foundational issue, whether it's uh, drug, alcohol abuse, abuse, domestic violence, whatever the issue is. The root issue, the heart issue is still being restored or reconciled to God. That's got to be the first issue. Um, I forgot to mention this. We did a staff retreat on Wednesday. All the staff from Spring Ranch went on retreat and we went to Chandelier Grove and the Chandelier Grove is in Tombaugh's owned by a member of Bay City Fellowship. They let's use the facility. I got there early and I was taking a tour of this beautiful, beautiful area where they have a lot of weddings and conferences. And they said, uh, now I'm going to take you on the tour of the barns. And we had our conference or a little uh, thing in the barns. They have these two barns. One's called the queen barn, one's called the king barn. And she said, this is what we did. We were looking to build a barn, but instead we found out that someone was selling their barns in Canada. And so this is what we had them do. We had them number every single piece of wood and they took it apart. And then we went and had it all shipped down from Canada to Tomball, Texas. And then we poured a foundation and laid a foundation on top of that foundation almost like a giant Lego set, giant, like a giant Ikea project, we began to reassemble this barn piece by piece by piece. Now here's a significant piece, is the foundation. For those of you who've ever had a house built, or maybe you have a house with foundation problems, you know that if you have foundation problems, those problems go through the rest of the house, amen? The walls, the plumbing, the plywood, all of it has, and even the roofing, because you have a foundation problem. So again, my point is, the reason why Elisha, the high priest, started with the sheet gate, and I believe it's mentioned here and also ends with in verse 32, is because we must be restored in our relationship with God first. That's foundational before we begin the work of restoration. Look at verse 2. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. So here's the thing. Uh, Jericho is 15 miles away. So here's point number, subpoint one. Some repaired the wall far from their neighborhood. Some people repaired the wall far from their neighborhood. So like I mentioned, all hands on deck, all hands on deck. So some people are saying, you know what? But I live all the way out in Katy. I live all the way out in the woodlands. I live all the way south in Pearland and you're asking me to serve and do this. He says here that when the call was made, some people from Jericho came. Uh, let me give you uh, four other cities that are mentioned in chapter three. I won't go through all of them today. So Jericho is 15 miles away. And, and again, remember this. As they're rebuilding the wall, don't think modern day Houston, Texas. Big earth movers and construction equipment. They're doing this all pretty much by hand, okay? Now think again, Jericho, 15 miles away. You think in your car, 60 miles an hour, that's a 15 minute drive. Don't think cars and highways. Think walking and running, all right? 
So if you can walk at, let's say, two miles an hour, it's going to take you seven hours to walk that distance. So they were 15 miles away. Tekoa, another place, was nine miles away. Gibeon was six miles away. Zenoa was 10 miles away. And Kaylee was 17 miles away. In chapter 3, it mentions that as they rebuilt the wall, that people from far away, hearing of the need to rebuild the wall, reestablish temple worship and sacrifice, they came from far away. So again, point number one, some repaired the wall far from their neighborhood. And the same thing applies to us as well. With the great commission that we have, some of us are going to go far away overseas to Asia, South America, Central America, Africa to make disciples. Here's the other thing. Point number two, look at verse 10. He says, next to Jediah, son of Harumaf, repaired the wall across from his own house, and next to him was Hattush, son of Hashabaniah. So point number two, or sub-point two, is some repaired the wall in their neighborhood. Some repaired the wall in their neighborhood. Verse 10, verse 23, and verses 28 through 30 in chapter three talk about people who literally walked out their front door every morning, got the newspaper, cup of coffee, and said, oh, the wall's broken down. Went back inside, had their coffee, and read the paper. He said, when the call was made from Nehemiah that we are going to rebuild the wall, now these people said, you know what? I'm going to put my hands to working in my neighborhood. And so again, relaying it to the Great Commission, there may be some of us who go overseas, far away, who go to other parts of the country, but here, sometimes it means working in our own neighborhood. So your mission field can be that person who lives right across the street. You may not be called to go to Thailand, but you've got that Thai neighbor who lives right across the street that God is saying, I want you to reach them. And notice this too. Uh, I mentioned Eliashib, the high priest. Uh, let's look at verses 15 and 16. He says, The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kolohosea, Jose, the leader of Mizpah district. He rebuilt it and roofed it and set up doors and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam near the king's garden and rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descended from the city of David. Two things to note there. So we find that this uh, Shalom was a noble. He was a leader. He was a political leader, a governor, we'd call him, or a mayor. So there's number three. Religious, political, and business leaders repaired the wall. There's no mention of professional wall repairs. Nobody in this group went to AM and said construction management. These were all various leaders, religious, political, and business leaders. And notice here in the text in verse 15, he calls it the city of David. And the reason why, like I mentioned again, that this broke Nehemiah's heart is because he remembered that God promised that there would always be a king who'd be sitting on the throne in the city of David. So he knew that this was leading up to the Messiah to come. And here's the thing. The city of David was not pretty to look at. It was destroyed. The walls are down. It was not doing what it was supposed to be doing, but God still called it the city of David. And so if you're here today and you're a religious or political leader and you say, you know what, that's not my job, then look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. I'm sorry, verse five, verse five, verse five. He says, uh, next were the people from Tekoa, which is nine miles away, though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors. There were a group of nobles or leaders from Tekoa who we don't know exactly why. Perhaps they were part of the opposition. Perhaps some of them thought, I'm a noble. I'm a multimillionaire. I'm a leader. I don't need to get my hands dirty. But here throughout this text in chapter three, we see religious, 
Political and business leaders were paring the wall. And my hope is that they were doing it out of a desire to see the wall rebuilt and worship restored. But here's the honest truth. There may have been some of them who rebuilt the wall for this reason, economics, because they knew that as long as the walls were down, business could not thrive. Business could not continue. Trade could not continue. Taxes were going to be low. The economy was going to be low. So they said, now if we rebuild the wall and restore this, there's something ultimately in it for us as well. But my hope is they did it for spiritual reasons. And like I read in verse five, supervisors were needed to repair the wall. It says there were supervisors as well. So not everyone was getting their hands dirty, carrying limestone from one place to another or going to the quarries and bringing it. He says that there were supervisors. So there needs to be people who can help us have a coordinated effort, a coordinated effort. So there were supervisors that were needed as well. Look at verse 12, verse 12. As a father of two daughters, I love this verse here. He says, Shalom, son of Halhesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. He was a leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. Again, he was the mayor or city council member. He says, this man who was a leader, a city council member, a mayor of sorts, he says, even though he was the big baller, shot caller, he says, you know what? If this is what God wants us to do and we need all hands on deck, then I will get to work. And not only that, my daughters will help as well. So here's uh, uh, point five there, sub point five, men and women repaired the wall. It wasn't just burly men who were construction uh, workers. He says that even women, these daughters helped rebuild the wall. Again, imagine large limestone rocks going to the quarry. And then he says this in verse eight. He says this in verse eight. Next was Uziel, son of Harahiah, a goldsmith by trade, who also worked on the wall. Beyond him was Hananiah, a manufacturer of perfumes. They left out a section of Jerusalem as they built the broad wall. Look at verses 31 and 32, the very end. Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the wall as far as the housing for the temple, uh, servants and merchants, across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner. The other goldsmiths and merchants repaired the wall from that corner to the sheep gate. So here's point number six or sub point six is this. They served outside of their gifting and skill. So here was a goldsmith and a perfume maker. Not exactly someone who's seen carrying giant pieces of limestone and going to the quarry and chiseling stuff. And yet they said, if this is what God wants us to do, even though this is not our specialty, even though this is what we have not studied, because this is what God wants us to do out of a heart of gratitude and service, they say we're going to get to work. Y'all see that? And here's the thing. I, I believe I've taken, I've taken Berkman. I've taken StrengthsFinder. I've taken Marius Briggs. I can tell you all these things that I'm good at and not good. I can tell you all those things. But here's the thing. If you've taken any of those things and you realize there's things I'm good at, not good at, God's gifted me in, God's given me spiritual gifts in, at points in your life, you have to just suck up and do it, y'all. You got to serve. You got to serve. You can't say, well, I'm a goldsmith. I'm a perfume maker. I crush flowers and other things and make these exotic perfumes. If the wall needs to re be, be rebuilt, then get to working. You can't say, you know what? I, I hear you, Icky. Two billion people haven't heard the good news. Millions across have not heard the good news. I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Sorry, I don't have it. But Jesus says this in Acts 1.8. He's called us to be witnesses. You know what a witness is? 
Someone who simply says in the stand in a courtroom and says, this is what Jesus did for me. I once was blind and now I see. <laughs> I, I say that uh, I'm, I'm serving in kids ministry on the Sundays I'm not preaching. Uh, so we have trained today from 1015 to 1045. So if I zip out of here right after, that's where I'm going. And they had to, I had to fill out a document. And they said, hey, would you share your testimony? I was super busy getting ready for today. So I just put in, I once was blind, but now I see. That's all I put in. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if God has saved you, all of us have a testimony and he's called us to testify. So you can't say, well, evangelism is just not my thing. Making disciples is just not my thing. It's just not my gifting. It's not my passion. It's not my strength zone. God says, you know what? Sometimes with a daunting task, like rebuilding the wall, making disciples of all ethnicities, you just got to do it empowered by the Lord. Um, I mentioned last week that we have a COVID protocol. So between worship gatherings, between worship gatherings, and thank you for those wearing your masks today and doing temperature checks and all that, and if you're sick, staying at home, we sanitize every single chair in here, every single chair, whether people sit or not, between the 9-11, we wipe down with antimicrobial, antibacterial wipe. We clean every single chair in here, every surface in here, we clean off. And so imagine, I think right now we're at about half capacity. Normally there's about 700 chairs in here. There's about 350, I think, in here. So imagine 350 chairs, wiping them all down by hand. We have a staff here who's very gifted in cleaning. But you know what? To get it all done in about 45 minutes, it requires all hands on deck. And so this is what just excites me and makes me grateful for our staff and for many of you. I see many of you hanging out when you could be going to lunch or going to brunch coming in and getting some wipes from our, our cleaning staff and wiping down chairs. Last week, I almost was brought to tears. I was over here wiping some chairs and I looked over and Nick Evans, our sound guy back here, Nick has mixed sound for some of the most well-known bands in America, some of the biggest concerts in America, in recording studios and live events. And here's Nick Evans, whose gifting and passion and strengths is in mixing sound and audio. And what's this guy doing? Wiping down chairs. Wiping down chairs. Why? Because that's what needs to get done. And so again, I believe in strengths. I believe in spiritual gifts. Don't get me wrong. I believe in 1 Corinthians 12. We all have a fit or a place in the body of Christ. But when it comes to fulfilling the great commission, when it comes to these daunting, huge tasks that God gives us, it requires all hands on deck. It requires a heart of being a servant. Um, I was running yesterday and I ran by Skyline and I've heard Skyline Volleyball Club, the owners are members here, going by Skyline. And so both my daughters played club volleyball, one of them played in college, the other one could have played, but ended up just focused on academics. So for about six or seven years of my life, club volleyball was my life. Volleyball, volleyball, volleyball every Saturday, volleyball during the school year, volleyball just year round practices. It was my life. And I began to research this. In tennis and volleyball and all net sports, I wondered why do they call it the serve? Why do they call it the serve? In volleyball, why do they call it the serve? And this is why. Do you know that the root word for tennis is from the Latin or the French word that means to receive? Did y'all know that? Did y'all know that? I don't know if any of you play tennis in here. It comes from the word to receive. And so there's always in tennis a receiving side that receives the ball. And then there always has to be what? On the other side, a serving side. Amen? I don't know about you, but every volleyball game I've been to, every tennis match I've been to, there has to be someone who's willing to serve, to give up what they have 
in order for something to happen. And I thought about that. You know what? Many of us come to church to receive. We're on the receiving side. But you know what? In order for you to come to receive, somebody's got to serve, y'all. Somebody's got to come and clean. I have this morning thing now where I run on Sunday mornings. I run from my house, I run here, and I get here between 6.30 and like 7. And you know what? The audio team and the worship team, they're already here. Well, you're just getting out of bed, maybe sip on your first cup of coffee. They're already here. And here's the thing, to fulfill the Great Commission is not just receiving, y'all. It's serving as well. If something's gonna happen, we have to serve. Here's point number two. So again, looking at this text, Nehemiah 3 is often skipped because it just seems like this list of just names of people who did what. My point is simply, there were people who said, if this is what God has called us to do, as impossible of a task as it seems, we are going to serve. Here's point number two. Are you served or a servant? Are you served or a servant? Are you a consumer or consumed? And here's the great tragedy of what's going on in the church in America the last 20 years, maybe even 25, 30 years, this last generation, is we have bought into the model of Amazon and Sears and JCPenney, a retail model, and we say to consumers, come to our church. We have something to offer you. Come and consume and consume. Consume our kids' ministry. Consume our worship. Consume our community groups. Consume our uh, projects. Consume, consume, consume. And then it's a bait and switch because we say come and consume. And then from the pulpit, we say, Paul said in Philippians 2 and 2 Timothy 4, 6, that he was poured out, that he was consumed. And God is calling us to a life of being consumed by him and for him. Scratching head, scratching. Wait, wait, I thought you said I come as a consumer. And now you're switching it saying God wants to use me and I've got to be the one who goes out to serve. Yes. And I'm thankful that Bayou City Fellowship is not like that. We don't have a million programs. We don't advertise, come and consume our stuff. We said, hey, come with a radical focus on Jesus and God is going to send you out. Jesus is going to send you out to be a servant. Mark 10, 41 through 45. James and John, they're talking about who's the greatest and who wants to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Hey, let's turn there. We got time, I think. Mark 10, verse 45 is my life verse, one of my life verses. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. If you remember the story in James and John and Mark 10, uh, it's their mom in some, some of the uh, gospels that basically is the original helicopter mom. And she comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, hey, hey, I got a favor. When you come in your kingdom, can you make sure that my boys are sitting at your right hand, the, the seat of authority? I want to make sure that they're in the right place. And Jesus basically says to James and John and the mom, hey, you really don't know what you're asking for because that place is reserved for those who are willing to endure suffering to the point of death. Look at verse 41. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant, hopefully indignant out of a righteous anger, not because they wanted to be at the right hand, out of jealousy, 
So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. He says, in this world, those that we call great have many people serving them. Verse 43, you should always underline the butts of the Bible. But among you, it shall be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus says, in this world, we watch TV shows, Shark Tank, Apprentice, because we admire these big ballers who have all these people waiting on them, serving them. But in the kingdom, it's the opposite. The more people you serve, the greater you are. And he uses two terms. He uses the word diakon, servant, butler. He says diakon. It's a, we can think of this word deacon from it. He says, he says this. He says, you should be like the household butler who serves everyone who comes as a guest, who comes to the home, who serves the owners. He says, you should see yourself as a servant. Then he takes it to the next level. Doulos, a slave. He said, that's how you should view yourself. And if you do that, and you, he didn't say you do serving every now and then when there's a project at the church or something to do at school, do serving. He says, be a servant. It's who you are. I'm a servant of the most high God. He says, then roles are reversed. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He says, then you'll be great in the kingdom. And I'll tell you this, this kingdom that we live in is temporary. The kingdom that we're going to is eternal. And I don't know about you all, I'd rather be last in this kingdom and first in the kingdom to come than first in this kingdom and last in the kingdom to come. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 4.1. The word there is hupe rites, uh, which is an under rower. He says we're called servants of God. Hupe rites. Hooper, hyper means below. Erites is, or I think it's a race, is a rower, an under rower. He says this is a picture in those days in the ships There'd be people below the deck who'd be rowing. You've seen all those movies. He says there's a captain of the ship and all those who are under rowers. He says that's what we are. Jesus is our captain and we are these anonymous, no-name under rowers who are rowing in the direction God wants us to go. Here's what Dr. King said as we celebrate MLK this past Monday. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. And that's why, again, Paul says, my life has been poured out as a drink offering. It's been a, a sacrifice. And I'm not saying burn yourself out and burn the candle at both ends. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is look at your life. Look at yourself as a sacrificial servant. If you want to tweet this, the mission of the master always requires surrendered servants. The mission of the master, whatever God breaks your heart in, if God breaks your heart for human trafficking, for fatherlessness, for drug and alcohol abuse, for domestic violence, for the Great Commission, for taking the gospel to the ends of the world, to the 70,000 people who would die without hearing about Jesus, whatever breaks your heart, it's gonna require you to be a surrendered servant. Let me read that again. The mission of the master always requires surrenders, surrendered servants. And it all starts, like I mentioned before, at the very end and beginning and end, we have to be reconciled to God 
We have to be restored to God before we can begin the work of restoration. In Mark 10, 31, just look over 10 verses. Jesus says this, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So again, if we're gonna accomplish this daunting, impossible task of the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, he says it requires all hands on deck. So yes, there are specialists. There are specialists like Billy Graham. There are specialists like other pastors and equippers that we are called to equip you all to do the work of ministry. I agree with that. But it also requires us all to be generalists, to say, you know what, I've got a testimony. God has saved me through Jesus Christ, and I want the whole world to know. I see the brokenness in our world that breaks my heart because I know it breaks God's heart. And I want God to use me both as a specialist and as a journalist. I want to be a servant. So again, if we're going to accomplish this great task, it's going to require for all of us in here who've put our faith in Christ, not to every now and then do serving, to serve on first Sundays in kids or second Sundays in collective, which I appreciate y'all doing, but to see yourself as a servant of the most high God. And if you do that, Here's the thing, in this life, on this earth, you may be last, you may be overlooked, unknown, but in the life to come, you're gonna be first. There's others of you in here who have a lot of people who serve you, and that's great. And you may be seen as first on this earth, on this planet, someone who's really important, a big baller, you're, you're, you're the man, you're the woman. But in the kingdom of come, if you're not becoming a servant, you'll be seen as last. I was reminded of that many years ago. I was asked to do a wedding. And this wedding was one of those storybook weddings. The bride was a teacher at a local elementary school. The husband-to-be was a pilot. And so they said, hey, we're going to have our wedding on the family farm. So I was flown up to rural Minnesota on the family farm. And I'd never been on a farm like this. They picked me up from uh, Twin Cities Airport, and they drove me out to the family farm for as far as I could see, in front of me, to the left, to the right, behind me, feed corn and sweet corn for as far as I could see. And they said this, um, now, we've got all these people flying in and we're just starting our, our life, you know, teacher and just new pilot. So do you mind if we fly you standby? Anybody ever flown standby before? Anybody flown standby? And this is what standby is. Standby is when you know someone who works for the airline or you're like one of those first class, you know, uh, royal, royal king, platinum people, whatever, that you can fly standby. And what it means is you get put on a list. And if there's seats available on that flight, they say, hey, we've got a seat available. That's your seat. And you get to fly. So they say, we've well, got you on standby. As an employee of this airline, we'll put you on the standby list. So going from, at the time I was in San Antonio, to Twin Cities, I got on the first flight, no problem. I was there on this farm for about five days. So we had like a couple days to get acclimated, rehearsal, the usual thing. And then I flew out the day after the wedding. Now, uh, the, the husband, his family were also pilots. And so before I left the farm, I went online and I asked the uh, one, that I think the groomsman, I said, where am I on the standby list going back home? Because I really want to get home. I miss my wife. I miss my kids. I said, where am I on the standby list? And he said to me, you're first on the list. And he said, there's six seats available. You're number one. And I'm like, yes, all right. So then we drove from the family farm another hour and a half back to Twin Cities Airport. 
I get to the front check-in desk, and y'all been there before, and I said, ma'am, uh, Iki Soma, I said, where am I on the list? And she said, um, you're last on the list. And I said, uh, last? I said, just an hour and a half ago, I was first on the list. And she said, now I'm last on the list? And she said, yes, you are. And I said, why? And she says, because we give priorities to actual employees of our airline and to our Royal Platinum members. And you're not one of them, right? So I'm like, okay. So she said, but this is what I would do. She said, there's six seats available. You're number seven on the list. You're last on the list. But I would go to the gate just in case. I said, great. So then go through security and I get to the gate and I check in. I said, ma'am, I'm Mickey Soma. You know, where am I on the list? She said, you're still last on the list. We've got six seats available and hopefully another seat opens up. If not, we'll fly you on the red eye in the morning. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to fly on that. So then sitting there. And they call in first-class passengers, and they get on the flight. They call in, you know, mothers with infants or parents with children, they get on. People who are serving the military, they get on. Then finally, they go through all the, the boarding. And then they say, now we're ready for the standby list. And I'm like on pins and needles just waiting. And I said, okay, okay, I got to count six. And they said, hey, would, uh, you know, uh, Michael Goldstein, please come. Platinum club, member, Platinum club member, Michael Goldstein, please come. And Michael Goldstein comes, and he's like, Sell a thousand shares, yeah, and gets on the flight, right? And then they said, hey, would Captain um, um, Janet Jones please come? And I see this woman with, a, you know, bars and eagles, and I can tell she's an employee. So she comes on the thing and looks at me, this, you know, piddly little pastor sitting there in my jeans and T-shirt, and gets on the flight. I count one, two, three, four, five, six. Six passengers, and they all get on. I'm like, oh, Get my cell phone out, get ready to call my wife and say, hey, I'll be on the red eye. You know, I'll, I'll get home like at eight in the morning tomorrow. And then from the intercom, I hear this strange call, a voice in the wilderness saying, would Anakia Samoa please come to the front desk? <laughs> so I, I come up to the front desk and I said, first, Ikea is a Swedish furniture store and Samoa is a country. I said, I'm Mickey Soma. What can I do for you? I kid. And she said this to me. She said, um, well, and she had this look, look in her eye and I said, oh, here comes the bad news. She's going to say, you're last on the list. We're out of seats. We're going to put you number one on the list for the red-eye flight for standby. And she said, well, um, we've got one seat that just opened up. And she still had to look like she was wincing. And I thought she was going to say, and we have to give this some platinum club member, you know. And she said, we've got one seat left that just opened up. And I'm like, okay. And she said, and um, it's first class. And I'm like, okay. And then she says, um, so would you mind taking that seat? I'm like, would I? Of course I would, right? And so this is what happened. I was last on the list. I get on the plane, and I'm in seat 1A. First class, first seat, first letter of the alphabet. And I got there, I sat down, and then the, the flight attendant came and gives warm, moist uh, towel to wipe my hands and face. And she said, soon we'll be serving some mahi-mahi and some other stuff. And I'm like, oh, great. And I remember just looking back at the back of the plane. And I remember seeing the VIP club platinum guy sitting way in the back. I remember seeing Captain Janet Jones, whatever her name was, sitting way in the back as well. And as we took off and entered into the skies, God began to speak to me. And he says, you know what just happened to you is going to happen one day in eternity, that there's going to be people in this world who are last on the list and they're going to be overlooked and mocked because they're last and they're nobodies, but they've been giving their heart to serving people and serving God. 
And you know what's going to happen? They're going to be one day in first class. They'll be first on the list. Seat 1A, first class. But there's going to be others who are great on this earth. Platinum club member, selling tens of thousands of shares, making all these deals, admired by people on magazine covers, corner office. And because they did not serve and really become a servant, in the life to come, which really matters, I really didn't care I was last on earth as long as I was first in the air. They're going to be last in the kingdom. So this is my plea from Nehemiah 3, Nehemiah chapter 3, is in the memory verses chapter 3, verse 1, is like Eliashib, the high priest, who could have said, I'm going to leave that for somebody else to do. He says, I'm going to get my hands to working. And all the other priests joined in. That we would develop a heart of service to become servants. And so again, we may be overlooked on this world, in this planet, in this kingdom, but in God's eyes, in the kingdom that really matters, you and I will be first. Let's pray. God, I do pray now for Bayou City Fellowship. God, I pray that this is not a bait and switch church, a church that says, come, consume all that we have to offer. Consume, 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 be served, be served, be served. But God, a church that clearly proclaims the life and words of Jesus. For even the Son of Man, God in the flesh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to sacrificially give his life a ransom for many. God, would that be the heart of this church for every single person under the sound of my voice who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that we would be servants of Jesus Christ, that we would be poured out, like Paul says in Philippians 2, as a drink offering, as a sacrificial drink offering. God, we know from Nehemiah 3, we know from Matthew 28, we know from the ending of all the Gospels that whenever you give us a mission, a God-sized mission, it requires surrendered servants. So God, would you find us in that place today, God? God, whether it's in the workplace, at home, in our communities, at the soccer game, at the softball game later today, that we would be witnesses for you, that we would put our hand to the work, that we would share what you have done in our lives as a witness, as someone who testifies, even if we don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, even if we're shy and quiet, God, would you give us holy boldness? Would you give us a love for you and a love for our neighbor? And God, for those who are here today who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and to surrender to him and submit to him as their Lord, God, would today be the day that you would save them, that they place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, God, and come to know that they are slaves to sin, in bondage to sin, but have been now set free to experience liberty, true liberty, to now become servants of you, to do what you have asked us, called us, commanded us to do, and experience freedom and joy like they have never experienced before. God, we may be last on earth. We may be last on the list. But Master, Father, we pray that we would experience being first the greatest in your kingdom. 
where it really matters, to be great in your eyes. We ask all this in the one who modeled this, the one who did this, Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Hey, uh, prayer team, if you'd come on up to my left and right, if you need prayer, if, if there's something that God is just pulling in your heart for, if you say, you know what, God has broken my heart for what breaks his, and I really believe God's calling me to serve in this area, to be a servant, but I'm just, I don't know what to do. I'm scared, I'm hesitant, I'm anxious. Prayer team's available left and right, and then also on the app, if you just submit a prayer request, you can submit your prayer request that way. Our elders pray every Thursday morning at 6.15, and thank you for those who submit a prayer request. It's been a joy to pray alongside y'all, and it's the answered prayer. But if you have a prayer request, please submit that on your app as well.